0: Bible with you. Go ahead and grab them. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. That's where we're going to be uh, picking it up here today, as we continue continue here right where we picked off, uh, right where we left off last week, um, and this story of God's redeeming, uh, the redemptive work of that God does in the lives of broken and hurting and fearful, undeserving people. And we're continuing here in Genesis 28. So if you're willing and able, I'd ask you to stand with me as we continue in worship this morning uh, together. Looking together as one people asking the Lord to speak to us. It's Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse verse 1. I'm going to go through verse 9 here to start. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife. From the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebeoth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would speak to us. Jesus, we need you today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, and that you would awaken our souls today that we might draw near to you through your word. I pray that you would speak through your weak, stammering, stumbling servant here this morning that my weakness, my frailty, my inability would not stand between you and your people. That's really the cry of my heart here this morning. And I pray that you would work in spite of all of us, that we might know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be be seated. As we we made our way through Genesis 27 last week, what we saw, and it was... (laughs) I mean, it was really pretty tragic, okay? Basically, all of Genesis 27 is tragic, but what we saw there was that there wasn't anyone in the family of faith, not a soul in that family, that we would call good, okay? There was nobody to celebrate, nobody to get behind and be a fan of, really, but they were But the sad truth is they were all fairly easy for us to relate to. You know, Isaac was actively going against God's declared purpose, choosing his favorite over faithfulness, fighting for his own preferences, fighting for his own agenda. Rebecca was was lying to and manipulating the people in her family, those closest to her, failing to trust in God's sovereign plan and in God's timing. Esau was going back on his word, breaking his commitment to his brother, just doing whatever he thought would work out for him. And Jacob was sneaking around the tent, dressed up like Esau, in order to intentionally deceive his old, blind, dying father. And so, what was true of that family is that there was nobody righteous in it for God to bless and the confession the confession that I made and I invited you into was that we would all fit in pretty well in that family, and we find them here in genesis twenty eight i'll say this we're given a little a glimmer of hope, okay as we see Isaac finally finally at this point surrender to the plans and promises of God there in verse one, we're told that he called that he that Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. Now, there are a bunch of different reasons that someone might set off on a, on a journey, right? Remember Noah, right? We've been going through Genesis. So let's just play in Genesis for a minute. Noah went into the ark because God had directed him, but he went into the ark in order to survive. That was the reason he began that journey. That was that was his journey. We saw Abraham was called by God to go out from his people uh, and to follow him. And we saw how Abraham, so now take Abraham's most trusted servant, probably Eliezer of Damascus. He was sent to go out and find a wife for Isaac, who, if we're honest, all right, Isaac at this point seems less and less impressive to us, right? But the, the point is that there were clear objectives. Every one of those journeys began with a reason. There was a reason for them to go. And, and, and those were good reasons. And we know that in our own lives, right, we go on journeys all the time. Some are shorter than others. I, I just think about the last couple of months, right, just going to the store to buy toilet paper, right, has felt like an epic quest, all right? I still remember in March when Laurie was like, you know... <laughs> It sounds like they're out of toilet paper, like everywhere. And so we loaded up in the truck, me and the middle son, Tucker and I, we loaded up, right? This is before anybody had a clue about mass or whatever. We set out on an epic quest, you know, against all odds. It's two men in a truck. And they went to Publix. And then, and then they went to Target and they went to Walmart because everybody was sold out. And then finally they got creative and they went and they pillaged their mother-in-law's stockpile and their family was safe from the toilet paper shortage of 2020, right? This is, this is how that journey began. But there, you see, there's countless reasons we might go on any sort of journey, but they all start with one thing in common. Every single journey you will ever go on starts with one thing in common. The genesis of every journey is a need. You go because there's a need. And when we find Jacob here in 28, it's easy to sort of romanticize this whole picture. It's easy to, it's easy to paint this as, just a, as a grand epic search for a wife. And that's certainly how Rebecca sold it to Isaac, remember? but the true catalyst for this whole thing was far less romantic because what we know is that the reason for this journey is really about keeping him safe. It's because his brother wants to kill him. And so instead of working through that as a family, instead of, instead of sort of mediating that and working towards some sort of reconciliation as a family, what we see in verse 5 is that Isaac sent Jacob away. So this, so this isn't the road. Here's, here's why that's important. This isn't the road that Jacob chose for himself. No, the only reason that Jacob went away is because Jacob was sent away. He was sent away from his people. He was sent away from his place. He was sent away from everything that he would have called normal. Now, that sounds a little familiar to, to a lot of us these days. But that's where we find him. Look now at verse 10 with me. In verse 10, it says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold... There was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." "'Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, "'and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east "'and to the north and to the south. "'And in you and your offspring "'shall all the families of the earth be blessed.'" Behold, here's God speaking, this is verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob, all right now here's 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, if you are, sorry, we're done there for a second. We'll come back to it, but we're done there for a second. I know a lot of families over the last couple of weeks have been, have been sort of entering into this, this phase where if you've got a kid who's 18 to like 22, and I, maybe that's too young now, it's like 18 to 24, seems to be about the average college age. Now you, you, you've been moving them in, and that's an exciting time. They're going off to school, especially, the, it's an exciting time, especially the first time a child leaves home. It's a moment of great anticipation, a moment of excitement. It's a step. And whether it's to college or into the workforce or to wherever they're going, it's a rite of passage, right? That's how we've largely as a culture grown to see that. And if we're not careful, that's how we'll see this of Jacob in Genesis 28. But that's not, that's not what this was, okay? Because at this point, Jacob, we did this before the service. I asked, how old do you think Jacob was here, the worship team? And, and we got a couple of, we had anything from 16 to 40 years old was kind of the guess, you know, because he's going to find a wife, he's being set off. But, but the problem is that's, that's how we would think of it, because he seems like a 16-year-old in this passage. The problem is he's not a young man at all. Most estimates, most commentators would tell you Jacob at this point is about 70 years old. So it's probably time for our boy to leave the nest, Right? Like maybe sprout some wings and fly. I mean, like go and do something. So imagine when you last week, when we went through Genesis 27, you saw Jacob as a little kid sneaking around with funny arms. Now you see an old man, you see your granddad walking around wearing camouflage trying to deceive his dad. So Jacob's not really more endeared to us in this passage than he was last week. He still seems pretty pitiful. It says there in verse 11 that he came to, I want you to notice this, this is an interesting detail. He came to, what's it say? A certain place. It doesn't tell us the name. Now, it's going to tell us the name later, okay? It's going to tell us the name later, but it doesn't tell us here. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So, what we're seeing, by the way, is about a 500 to 550 mile journey that he's on right now. And over the course of that journey, we see that this, this one moment, this one scene, all right, this one night is of pinnacle importance. And it's a reminder for you and I, all right, that if God can meet and does, in fact, meet Jacob in this place, this certain place, why would you think for even a moment that God is either incapable or unwilling to come and meet you where you are? God has come to Jacob right in the gap of life. And, this, and the dream reinforces this for us. One, one commentator has said that the dream permits the entry of an alternative into his life. He goes on to say the dream is not a morbid review of a shameful past. It is rather the presentation of an alternative future with God. So listen, here's what the dream's not. It's not God coming to him going, hey man, I've been watching. I've got a little list of things that you've been doing wrong. You know, you had a pretty productive last week. You have managed to anger, uh, anger everyone in your family. You got your brother wanting to kill you. Let's talk about that a little bit, right? It's not a vision of, of Jacob standing in a courtroom before an angry judge. And I think that sometimes, if we can just be honest, uh, maybe even most of the time, I think that's how we're tempted to see God. That's how we're tempted to think of God or even, and I, I think this is safe to say, or it's even how we've been taught to think of God. Like he's sort of this like cosmic probation officer, right? Like he's just always there, just sitting up in the heavens, waiting for us to check in every once in a while, make sure we don't leave the state or whatever. Um, just sitting up in the heavens, waiting for us, and keeping a list of everything that we do wrong. And to be sure, Hebrews 4.13, listen, Hebrews 4.13 makes it clear that no creature is hidden from, this, from his sight. And so God does see it all. He does, right? He knows it all. He saw Rebekah and Jacob scheming. He saw Jacob dressing up and lying to his father. He sees it all. He sees us in our moments of victory. He sees us in our moments of defeat, like a toddler playing hide and seek. God sees us when we think we're hidden, right? And everybody who had a child remembers that. When you finally start playing hide and seek, and they literally just sit in the middle of the floor and cover their face, and they go, I'm mean, yeah, count, and then you as a parent have to think on your toes and you just start counting in the middle of the living room and you like walk around a little bit to kind of convince them that they are actually hidden. They're not, it's not until they get to be like five they go and find a closet at least somewhere. You know, This is how we look when we try to hide from God. He sees it all. We're in the middle of the floor covering our face as if he can't see us. Hebrews 4.13 goes on to say that no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's what David cried out in Psalm 139 when he asked, "Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence?" He's asking these rhetorical questions. These are honest questions though of his heart. He's going, "Where can I go?" And then he responds to himself. This is what David says. He says, "If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there." He's going, there's nowhere where you aren't there. This is what David's crying out in Psalm 139. He's going, you're in the good places. You're in the bad places. You're everywhere. You're in the normal places. You're in the pandemic places. You're in the house when it feels like it's falling apart. Anyone? You're in the car when we can't seem to find our way. You're in the doubting places. You're in the confident places. This is what David's saying in Psalm 139. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, right? You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. That's how Jacob is before the Lord in this dream. He just doesn't realize it yet. You see, the beauty of Psalm 139 is that David understood this fundamental truth that so many of us have forgotten maybe never known, and that at least at this point in Genesis 28, it's this truth that Jacob has failed to grasp, is that there is no limit with God. That's what the Lord, that's what Yahweh is doing here in this dream. He's telling Jacob that he's not alone. Even with all of his mess, even with all of his lies, even with all of his deceit and the absolute dishonor of his own father, God has not abandoned him. He's telling Jacob and he's making it clear to us that And you might want to write this down. I don't normally say that, but you might want to write this down. God's making it clear that in the mess is right where he comes and meets us. That in the mess of life, that in the fray, that right in the gap of everything that we're doing, that is right where God comes and meets us. You see, Jacob set out to go and find a wife, but the beauty of Genesis 28 is that God came and found him first. He left Beersheba to escape from Esau, but there's nowhere that he can go to escape from God. But unlike so many are tempted to think, what God wants us to know, here's the beauty of it, is that that is a good thing. That him being present all the time is a good thing. That's what this dream is all about. It's all about the presence of God with the people of God. We see it in the stairway or the the ladder that God has has done what man could not, right? As man tried and failed back at Babel to try and build a tower uh, to the heavens, God has now made a way and he's active in the whole thing. Did you notice that? Like, he's standing. Look at at verse 13. It says, And behold, the Lord stood above it. So, so, So God isn't asleep at the wheel. Despite what our culture around us would love to tell us, despite what the world would love for us to think, God is not indifferent. God is not disconnected. He's not separated from all that. He's not just like cuddled up on his throne with a blanket watching the whole thing play out. Just binge watching society. No, the picture here is of a God who is not distant, not disconnected, not disinterested. It's a picture of the living God who is dynamically involved in the things of the earth. It's a portrait for us of a God who is concerned about his creation. And specifically, please don't miss this, not just his creation, but he's concerned about his people. And look at the promise of God to Jacob. This is still there in verse 13. He says, I am the Lord The God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have have promised you. Did you notice how none of the promises of God in those verses are dependent on the behavior of Jacob? He says, "I will give you this land. I will give you offspring. I am with you and will keep you. I will not leave you." He doesn't say, "I might come around from time to time." He doesn't say, "I hope it all works out for you or, you know, good luck." He doesn't say, if you do this, then I will try to do that. No, it's not conditional. God makes his promises and God keeps his promises. And so he's willing to and committed to a faithfulness toward us, often in spite of our failure to walk in faith with him. And nowhere Nowhere is this more clear than in John chapter 1, verse 51, where Jesus says this. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. This is what Jesus said. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what does that sound like? I mean, we just read it, right? Jacob's dream. You've got angels ascending and descending on this ladder. What does Jesus claim to be there in John chapter 1? Remember, Nathanael, his, his kind of racist uh, disciple, he's, he's, he's being renewed and restored in that, but he's got some issues on that. Nathanael had just stood in awe because Jesus had seen him under the fig tree. That's what had happened in John 1. Jesus had seen him. He said, behold, I saw you under the fig tree, and Nathanael lost his Mine, He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, to which, and this is a paraphrase. This is an Adam Williams paraphrase. Jesus effectively said, buckle up, brother, because you ain't seen nothing yet. Like, get ready. You see, in John 1, Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. He's saying, I am the stairway. He's saying that whatever gap you find yourself in, whatever you are in the middle of right now, maybe a journey through the desert, maybe the start of an incredibly strange new school year, right? Maybe loneliness. Maybe it's loss. Maybe you're in regret. Maybe you're in the gap of sickness. For those who are hungry, what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. For those who are blind and desperate, he says, I am the light of the world. For those who feel trapped, what does he He says, I am the door. For those who are alone and vulnerable, he says, I am the good shepherd. For those who are dead and dying, I am the resurrection and life. For those who are lost and helpless, I am the way and the truth and the life. And for those who are playing the game of religion, still trying to build their way, earn their way, find their way. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And Jacob's response. (laughs) Look at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you've given me, I will give a full tenth to you. you notice something different about what Jacob says to God than what God said to Jacob? Jacob says, if you do this, then you will be my God. If you do what you just said you're going to do, then you'll be my God. I think it's safe to say Jacob's taking the first step in faith here, but he's still playing a conditional game. He's still telling God, you've got to prove it. You've got to prove it. The benefit for us is that we've seen him prove it. We saw him prove it in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. For our condition. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob's right. He probably doesn't realize how right he is. You see, this is right where God comes and finds us. He comes and finds you and I in the middle of it all. He comes and finds you and I when we aren't looking for Him. He comes and finds you and I when we're chasing after everything else around us. When we are so far removed, so distant and so lost, that's when He comes to us and says, you don't have to clean yourself up, I'll do that for you. This is what Bruce Waltke said. I want you to hear this quote. It's actually in your worship guide. I, I gave you this because I think it's so powerful. It's there under the questions for community groups, which, by the way, if you ever just want to go and interact with the passage, there's five questions there you can, you can use to just kind of interact with and begin to look at the passage. But here's a quote from Bruce Waltke. He says, God's presence not only gives our identity eternal dignity and meaning, but also transforms our secular journey from a touring expedition into a sacred pilgrimage. He not only gives our identity eternal dignity and meaning, but also transforms our secular journey from a touring expedition into a sacred pilgrimage. You see, in His grace, God comes and finds us. In His mercy, He comes and redeems us. And in His love, He draws near to us. And what we're told is that He does this for His glory and for our good. Some of us are still walking on the same path, expecting something different to happen. We're expecting to find a new location when we've been walking our whole lives. We're like Jacob, grabbing rocks to use as pillows and laying down in the desert. It's even in those moments that God doesn't say, well, go, go your way. No, God says, come, be with me, and I'll take you home. That's the beauty of the gospel message. The promise of God, not the promise of man. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word to us. I pray that you'd forgive my forgetfulness, forgive my wandering, forgive the the all too regular steps that I take away from you. Lord, I thank you for coming and finding us in the gap. I thank you for finding us in those places, in the middle of whatever we're in, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's social disorder, whether it's political mess and strife. Lord, you come and you meet your people there and you promise that you'll bring us home. Lord, help us to live for a higher purpose. Help us to find our lives in you. Help us to commit our lives to you. Help me to do that. Because you've given your life for us. Lord, I pray that you would build us up as a church today that we might walk in the truth rather than in the noise. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and respond?